The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Good morning, everyone. Our scripture reading comes from Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. If you would like to follow along in your own Bible, if you do not have a Bible, we have some at the back. If you would just raise your hand, someone would love to bring you a Bible. So starting in verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of the Lord. At first glance uh, at our passage for this morning, Uh, we might be tempted to think that it's a little bit of a theological buzzkill. Um, Think about Philippians 2. Uh, In Philippians 2, there's all of this rich language about who Christ is and what He's done for us. And then Paul calls the church to uh, bear witness to who Christ is through obedience to Him and in sacrificial service to the church and the world. And we, so we get to our passage for today, and it's about travel plans. Travel plans? Really, Paul? What am I supposed to do with this? Uh, at first glance, uh, it seems that the primary concern of the passage is about the travel plans of Paul and his co-workers. Why this section now about travel plans? Seems odd. Well, there's a theologian by the name of Drew Johnson, and he's written this great book. I would commend it to you. It's called Scripture's Knowing. It's the title of the book, Scripture's Knowing. And in the book, Drew Johnson asks the question, how do you and I, how do we as humans come to know something? It's an interesting question. How do we come to know something? And this is the answer that he gives. He says this, In the end, biblical knowing appears similar to how scientists come to know, how we came to read, how the disciples came to see what is and is not, part of the kingdom of God. Ventures in knowing always require a guide. 
It's important. A guide, someone who can authoritatively teach us. Because knowing happens in the social realm. We need reasons to trust our guides. Once they are shown to us as trustworthy, our guides direct us to perform actions that will dispose us to see something that we could not apart from the practice that they give us. A molecular formation, meaning emerging from words on a page, or a crucifixion is part of God's plan for Jesus to rule his kingdom. Okay, that was dense. But do you see what he's getting at? He's saying no matter who you are, Christian or not, we as humans learn how to act in the world around us by trusting guides who, who teach for us and model for us how to see and live in the world. Whether that's a science teacher, a football coach, or a pastor, we learn by looking to models around us. And it's, it's true for the church. It, at SVCC, you and I learn to pray by looking to people who we believe have a vibrant prayer life. We learn to sing praise to the Lord by looking to those around us that sing praise. We learn what it means to be part of a Christian community by looking at others around us. We learn how to speak about the gospel in the culture by what? By looking at those who are doing it. We learn how to live faithfully as disciples of Jesus Christ as Christians by looking to examples, by looking to guides that we trust. And we say, I want to be like that. And the scary thing is, or maybe the cool thing is, that we all do this whether we realize it or not. It's how we come to know. It's how we come to live in the world. And so, in this passage, that at first glance just seems to be travel plans that we could quickly skim over in a Bible reading plan, um, rather there's more beneath the surface. I believe that here in this passage, Paul writes about Timothy and Epaphroditus because they're examples of everything that he's been telling them so far in the book of Philippians. They're examples of, of what he wants the Philippians to do. Um, he says, Philippians, do you want to live a life that's worthy of the gospel? Look at Timothy. Look at Epaphroditus. But do you want to see what it looks like to stand firm amidst persecution for Christ's sake and put up with uh, very difficult relational problems? Do you want to see what it looks like to do nothing from selfish ambition or pride? Uh, do you want to see somebody who's working out their salvation with fear and trembling? Look to and lift up Timothy and Epaphroditus. That's what the Philippians need to do, and that's what you and I need to do this morning. 
so that we can faithfully bear witness to the gospel in 2020. So that we can have a community who has a fearless unity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So first, let's look at Timothy. That's the first example that Paul sets before us. Look at Philippians 2, verses 19 through 24 with me. As we look at Timothy. Verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel, I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that surely I myself will come also. Okay, before we look at the example of Timothy from this passage, I want us to see the example of Paul. What example does Paul give us in these verses? Uh, Well, Paul says that he hopes to send Timothy to the Philippians soon travel plans, right? Um, But he says that he hopes to send him so that he can be cheered when Timothy eventually reports back to him. So that Paul can be cheered when Timothy gives the report after the visit. Um, Why does he say this? Uh, We know from looking through the book of Philippians that there's some serious conflict going on in the church in Philippi. Uh, And Paul, although he's an apostle, he's not a fortune teller. He doesn't know how this conflict is going to turn out. So how does he know that when Timothy reports back to him that it's going to be good news of reconciliation and not bad news of further conflict and division? How does Paul know that the Philippians are going to take to heart what he's saying? Why will they not just ignore him? Well, Paul's been in ministry for a bit. And this is not the first time that he's been concerned about a church. Paul was worried about the Thessalonians' steadfastness amidst persecution. But then what? Oh, he was relieved to hear from Timothy that they were doing well. Paul was concerned about the Corinthians' attitude about him only only to hear from Titus that They had what? Well, they had repented of their wrongful attitude towards him. While Paul can't tell the future, while he's not a fortune teller, he tells them this as an encouragement to resolve the conflict. And he says this because he has great hope that the spirit that now dwells in them, that can give life to the dead, can bring about reconciliation in really difficult situations. That's his, that's his hope. Um, to commit yourself to the church, or might I be more specific, to commit yourself to Shades Valley is to invite conflict into your life. Congratulations. 
It's unavoidable. Now, for some of us, for me to say that is causing us to break out in hives and to look at the exit signs. I get it. I don't like conflict. I don't like drama. If I can be honest, I don't like dealing with difficult people. Not that any of you are difficult people. My tendency, what I prefer to do, is become cynical and shut down and disengage. And that's how I can protect myself from the pain. That's how I can protect myself from the conflict. To shut down. To disengage. But here, Paul doesn't show a cynicism in his words. He's not shutting down. He's not stepping away. Right? But he also doesn't have a naive optimism. Nah, it's all going to be fine. Right? Um, no, he has what I'm calling, what we might call this morning, a hopeful realism. I like that term. I didn't come up with it. I'm stealing it and not giving credit. <laughs> hopeful realism. Uh, hopeful realism acknowledges that there's conflict and that it could get worse and that people are difficult, but also that those that live lives that profess faith in Jesus Christ are indwelled by the Spirit, and because they're indwelled by the Spirit of truth, that there's always hope, that God can open their eyes, that God can soften their hearts, that God can bring about reconciliation in situations where it appears like it could never happen. This is Paul's attitude towards the Philippians. And it must be ours. Um, This posture of hopeful realism, you know what it does? It doesn't cause us to take a step back. It doesn't cause us to disengage. It doesn't cause us to become cynical and to write people off. What does it do? It pushes us into the pain. It pushes us into the conflict with peace and patience and endurance and perseverance and forgiveness and hope. Hope in what God can do, right? This is Paul's attitude. This is Paul's posture, and it must be ours. It's first the example of Paul. Second, we have the example of Timothy. The example of Timothy. And Timothy, for us this morning, Timothy is a guide. He's a guide for you and me that that shows us um, what it looks like to put the interest of Christ and the interest of others before our own. Timothy shows us this is what it looks like to put Jesus first. Um, This is what it looks like put Shades Valley first. Look at what Paul writes in verse 20. He says, I have no one like him, talking about Timothy, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. 
Uh, We first meet Timothy in the book of Acts on Paul's second missionary journey. We know his father was a Gentile and that he is the son and grandson of godly women that had a major influence on his life. Moms, listen to that. Godly mothers and godly grandmothers had a major spiritual impact on Timothy's life. It's another example, but that would take the whole day. We must move on. Uh, Timothy was not merely a co-worker of Paul. Uh, the apostle had great affection for him. Uh, Paul describes Timothy as one equal in soul. Uh, he describes him like a son. And Timothy was someone who was indispensable to Paul's ministry. He would even serve as a stand-in. That's how much trust Paul had for Timothy. If Paul couldn't be there, Paul could go, well, I'm going to send Timothy, and I can trust that he's going to take care of things. That's who Timothy was. Um, I, I don't know of a better illustration of Paul's words about Timothy than Timothy's circumcision. Many of us know about this instance. Uh, it's hard to forget. All right? Uh, for those that don't know, Timothy was circumcised as an adult. He was circumcised at the beginning of his ministry with Paul for the sake of those that he would share the gospel with. Um, I think one commentator says it best, yikes! <laughs> Timothy did this. It's a painful procedure. He didn't have to. Right? He didn't have to. Um, the first time I ever gave a sermon at a church on a Sunday morning, I was told uh, not to wear jeans because several guest speakers had been wearing jeans and there were several members in the congregation that were greatly distressed. Emphasis, greatly distressed. I didn't respond well. I was livid. You would have thought they told me that I needed to get up and preach in a Halloween costume. It was bad. I was young, and I was right. And that's a deadly combination. (laughs) It is. It is. Now, I did wear khakis that day. I showed up with khakis and a button-up and a jacket. But I might have texted the 12 members of the worship team youth praise band that were playing to remind them that they all could wear jeans and t-shirts. Untucked t-shirts. I say that to my shame, not to my glory. As, As I was reflecting on this passage, I thought, you know, I think Timothy would have been okay with wearing khakis. You know, I think Timothy would say, I'll take khakis every time, right? I can do that. Um, Timothy was circumcised at the beginning of his ministry so that it wouldn't be a hindrance in his evangelism to the Jewish people. So that they would accept him as a Jew, so there wouldn't be a stumbling block. So that they would be more inclined to hear the good news of the gospel. Um, 
But he didn't have to, right? Timothy didn't have to wear khakis. To embrace the gospel did not require Timothy to do this. He had the right to not do this. But he set aside his rights. Why? Because he loved others, and his deepest desire above all things was that Christ would be glorified. That they would hear the gospel, and that they would come to deeply love Jesus. Uh, one commentator named Lynn uh, Kohick, in her great commentary on Philippians, says this about Timothy. For Paul, Timothy represents a singular focus so admirable in any follower of Christ. He represents the joyful delight in building up believers, encouraging them into further and deeper devotion to Christ. You see, often uh, you and I enter into Christian community with all of these idealized visions of what the community should be or how it's going to be. But then, by the grace of God, we don't meet an idealized vision of the church. We meet what? Real people. Um, and our tendency is to fantasize. If only the community was like this. If only these people were like this. If only these people would be this for me. I mean, you and I are consumers in every other areas of life. Why wouldn't this be true when we come to church? But when you and I enter as consumers, when we enter saying, what do you got for me? Instead of asking, what do I have for you? We deprive ourselves of the joy, the joy, the, the difficult and painful joy of laying down our of wearing khakis, of putting others' needs before our own. Why? So that Christ would be honored. We miss the joy of being more concerned with others' love and discipleship to Jesus than our own preferences. What does it look like to enter a community in this kind of way? It looks like Timothy. It looks like Timothy, who laid down his rights for the sake of the gospel. All right, we've looked at two examples. We just have one more. And that's the example of Epaphroditus. The example of Epaphroditus. This is the next guide that Paul places in front of us to show us what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Look at Philippians Verses 25 and 30 with me. 2, 25 to 30. Verse 25. I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him 
in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Uh, Epaphroditus is less well known to us than Timothy, uh, but Epaphroditus was the Philippians' emissary, sent not only to give a financial gift to Paul, uh, but to stay with Paul and to minister to his needs. But the question is, why is Epaphroditus returning so soon? Why is Epaphroditus returning and Paul is still in prison the mystery with Epaphroditus in this text is, <clears throat> excuse me, is not in his going to Paul, but in his return. Did he fail in his mission? Uh, did he not do what the Philippians wanted him to do when they commissioned him? Well, one thing's clear with Epaphroditus. Uh, he did not abandon or disappoint Paul. Paul heaps praise on him in this passage. He de describes Epaphroditus as a brother, as a co-worker, a fellow soldier. He says that Epaphroditus risked his life for Paul. Uh, he became ill, either as he was journeying to Paul or once he arrived, and he almost died. But he persevered. He endured for the sake of the gospel. For his mission. A, a possible scenario is this, because we don't get all the details in the text, but a possible scenario is that uh, the long, young Philippian church sets Epaphroditus aside and tells him to serve along Paul, potentially long term. They contribute a lot of money, uh, not only for Paul, but for Epaphroditus to serve with him. And the rigors of his time with Paul, whether sickness or something else, ultimately prevented him from fulfilling that mission. But he did risk his life for Paul. And Christ was glorified. Paul wants to make that clear. And so he wants the Philippians to receive him with joy, right? Um, if you see Epaphroditus at Chili's, that's okay, right? Um, he didn't abandon me. He's not back uh, taking your... Uh, money to get a molten lava cake now, right? Um, you didn't run a 5K in vain. Uh, that's what Paul wants them to know. He wants them to honor him. So then, if Epaphroditus is an example for us in this text, then Epaphroditus is someone that shows us what it looks like to live faithfully and to endure for the glory of Jesus. He also shows us, and I think this is a especially important for our moment in American Christianity. He also shows us how success is defined in the kingdom of God. He also shows us how success is defined in the kingdom of God. Uh, there's a movie that I recently saw in theaters. Maybe you've seen it. It wasn't here very long. Called A Hidden Life. A Hidden Life. It's a long film. It was almost three hours. I went into the theater on a Monday and left on like a Thursday, and I had no clue what time it was. But it was definitely worth seeing. It's definitely worth your time. Uh, the film is set during World War II in Austria. Uh, the protagonist is an Austrian farmer named Franz. 
And Franz, by many standards, is not remarkable. Uh, He was an Austrian farmer in a small village with a beloved wife and several small children, and he had aspirations to live a quiet life. Uh, Franz wrote no books. Franz led no revolution. He's what most of, I, most of us in this room today would call ordinary. Ordinary. Um, and in the film, Franz hears what's happening in the war. The exterminations, the persecution, the slaughter of innocents. And he becomes certain that his Christian faith will not permit him to participate, even if he is called to active military service for the Nazis. He is eventually called, and he refuses, because it would mean swearing loyalty to Hitler. The town, his family pleads with him, can't you just serve in the, in the hospital? Certainly, won't your conscience allow you to do that? And it would. Except, he would still have to swear allegiance to Hitler. And he says he won't do that. And so, so much of the film, so much of the three hours of this film is the couple constantly wrestling with his conviction. People around the town accuse him of being conceited, of being prideful, of of harming his own family. Think about what this is going to do to your wife and your children. Franz, you could live a peaceful life if you would just bow the knee. And all throughout the movie, people keep telling him, this isn't doing anything. Your suffering's not doing anything. Your suffering does not mean anything. Nobody knows, and you will die in obscurity. And the question that I think the writer and director is posing to the audience is, does his suffering matter? Does any of it matter? No one speaks about it. If no one sees it, if there's not some grand heroic act, does it matter? One movie reviewer writes this about the film. I thought it was very insightful, speaking to our human nature. She says this, It is our human nature to love the story of a person who did great things, saved lives, wrote books, stood against the dictator that wiped out millions of lives. It's less common for us to celebrate a man who threw away a comfortable life and simply refused to do what he knew he could not and paid with his life. Instead, a hidden life dares us to imagine that the latter is at least as important as the former, and maybe even more so. For us here today, uh, to commit yourself to the good of others, to commit yourself and your life to the glory of Jesus Christ will cost you. It's a commitment to suffer. It may require 
your life? I don't know. It may require you to uproot and to leave everything that's comfortable. But I imagine for many of us in this room today, the suffering that we will be called to is the suffering that is the day in and day out suffering of being a Christian at Shades Valley in Birmingham, Alabama. It's, it's bearing with a community. It's giving of our resources when we could definitely give more to ourselves. It's loving the unlovable. It's entering into the pain of those around us when we could just numb out and distract with so much entertainment. It's giving up our rights. It's, it's having hard conversations. It's asking for forgiveness. It's giving forgiveness when you know that the other person definitely doesn't deserve it. It's laying down your rights. And this day in and day out suffering, these ordinary tasks can lead us to ask the question, does any of it matter? Does it mean anything? Is this doing anything? But the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that for those that have given their life to him, for those that have given their life to building up others in Jesus Christ, it all matters. Every second of it matters. And the Lord is using it all to accomplish his redemptive purposes in the world. He's doing it in the day in and the day out. He's doing it in the midst of our gathering this morning, even if it doesn't feel like anything's happening. He's doing it as we bear with one another shades, which is so difficult to do. He's doing it as we lay down our lives. It may be hidden, but it matters. It may be hidden to the world, but it matters. Epaphroditus was sent home early. Mission accomplished? Nope. But was Christ honored? Yes. In the kingdom of God, worldly success is flipped upside down, and that's challenging for us as Americans. Kingdom success is not measured in numbers. Kingdom success is not measured in money. Kingdom success is not measured in political power. Kingdom success is not measured in church growth or retweets or perceived influences or gigantic conferences. Not that those things are bad. But success is redefined in our American minds is faithfulness to Christ. Faithfulness in the midst of the mundane, in the midst of the obscurity, we see that God is bringing about his eternal purposes and that it does all matter. It does all matter. Paul closes the passage for today that we read with these words, and so it's where we'll close as well. Paul tells the Philippians, Receive him in the Lord with all joy. Honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. We live in a culture that loves celebrities, don't we? Um, And I'm one of those people, right? Every time I look and hear Brad Pitt, I say, could God create a more perfect human being? 
I think the answer is no. Right? I'm, I'm right there with you in this. Right? I get it. We love these larger-than-life figures. And the reality is, it's true in the Christian world as well, right? Uh, We want a pastor that has a book deal. We want a pastor that speaks at every conference. We want a pastor that has a witty and yet insightful response to everything. Uh, We want a pastor that has a huge following. Um, And not just pastors, right? But just Christian leaders, Um, but although we tend to honor those who are successful, although we tend to honor those who are attractive, Brad Pitt, although we tend to honor those who are popular, right, and in our Christian circles we do this, um, I don't believe Paul would say look to someone because they have a charismatic personality or great fashion, or a large following on social media, although you might be tempted to, who would Paul say to look to? Paul would say, look to those around you in the community who are sacrificing their life for others. Look to those in the community whose sole devotion is building others up in the gospel. Look to those in the community that gives sacrificially, those that lay down their rights, those that seek for Jesus to be glorified above all things. Give them a weight. Give them a voice. See them as a guide. Look to them. Honor them. Follow them. And then take what you see and in kind of an improv sort of way, live it out in your own context and in your own life. This is what Paul wants the Philippians to do. And it's what he wants us to do this morning. Amen.